Welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases, a clinical neuroscience podcast. Hello, welcome to another episode of NeuroPodCases. Today I'm joined by Dr. Mirasol Forcadella, who's a neurologist with a special interest in neuroimmunology and for the last year and a half has been working here at the Walton Centre at the National Referral Centre for NMO. Hi, Miri. Hi, John. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming on the podcast. And uh, today's episode, we're going to be talking about the uh, the condition of neuromyelitis optica or NMO, which I know is something that you've been working in that field for the last year and a half. Yeah. Um, so what would be great is just to get your thoughts about on NMO and uh, about what it is, how we treat it, and uh, some of the future advances coming, up, uh, coming away in this field. So... To start with, um, what is neuromyelitis optica? Great question. Um, so I guess we would we'd typically call it neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorders, or NMOSD is what you might see. So just broadly, it's a rare autoimmune condition which causes inflammation within the central nervous system. As the name might suggest, historically it was associated with severe involvement of the spinal cord and the optic nerve. That's why it's called neuromyelitis, spinal cord optica, optic nerve. And it previously, you might see it historically as being known as Devic's disease. Um, we now know that it can also involve other locations as well. Okay. And um, what sort of patients get NMO? Well, first of all, it's a, a rare condition. Um, there are some demographic characteristics that might make it more common in certain patients. So, and the incidence itself, it can be a bit dependent on where you look geographically and, and the ethnicity of a population. We do know that those of an Asian or African ancestry are at an increased risk. Uh, and females are more susceptible than males, which is you know, common in certain autoimmune conditions as well. The median age is maybe a little bit older than you might expect. It's about 39 years old. And Approximately one in four patients with the Aquaporin-4 positive NMOSD also have coexisting other autoimmune conditions, which is a nice thing to keep in mind in terms of patient population that you might be referred. So some patients will have things like lupus as well, myasthenia gravis, and even things like celiac disease. Okay. Um, we're going to come back to the Aquaporin-4 <clears throat> antibody a bit later, because I know that that's quite important with uh, with this condition. Um <clears throat> Now, listeners may be more familiar with other neuroinflammatory conditions such as multiple sclerosis. Um, I guess the next question would be, so what are the differences between NMO and MS? And, and I guess also sort of what, what do they have in common? What's similar between the two of them? It's a really good question. Um, so pathologically, we would see them as two different distinct diseases, NMOSD and multiple sclerosis. I think that is important to note. It has been associated to, um, to multiple sclerosis, and I think in um, certain areas, such as the UK, um, because MS is much more common, um, it may be sort of related to that in the media or when, when explaining things to patients, but they are clinically and pathologically different. It is worth pointing out that we know a lot more about, you know, I'm sure we'll talk about it later, aquaporin-4 positive NMOSD. Um, there is a seronegative form of NMOSD, uh, but that may well turn out to be a heterogeneous group of conditions in the future as we tease it out. Uh, so a lot of what I say will be in relation to aquaporin-4 positive NMOSD. So I guess in relation to MS, they're both autoimmune conditions, which is a similarity certainly, and they both ex uh, affect the central nervous system. 
but pathologically the cell that is actually being targeted is different so in multiple sclerosis uh, we're looking at oligodendrocytes uh, and that therefore affects the myelin and demyelination with aquaporin 4 nmosd we consider it an astrocytopathy so um, aquaporin 4 is the most widely expressed water channel in the brain and spinal cord and optic nerves so you see it in regions that is in contact with the cerebrospinal fluid and it specifically is on the foot processes of astrocytes that are at the blood-brain barrier. Um, so experimental data looks at um, the aquaporin-4 antibodies. Uh, when they bind to their receptors, they induce things like interleukin-6. And then that interleukin-6 signaling can reduce the blood-brain barrier uh, function and you get astrocytic damage. So in contrast to MS, the demyelination in NMOSD is actually a secondary event due to the astrocyte damage rather than as a consequence of, you know, direct attack on oligodendrocytes, we think. Okay. So you've told us a bit about there about the aquaporin-4 antibody and you've you've hinted that, you know, you can still have NMOSD even if you're antibody negative. Um, but could you just maybe elaborate a little bit more on that? Maybe start by telling us the importance of the aquaporin-4 antibody. Yes, of course. So we do think that the aquaporin-4 antibody is very important for the diagnosis of a type of NMOSD. So seropositive NMOSD, you might see it, or aquaporin-4 antibody positive NMOSD. In this type of NMOSD, we think that it's incredibly important and the role of the antibody and the water channels that we've just talked about is intrinsically linked in what we understand of the pathological process. The majority of people will have aquaporin-4 in their blood when they have a diagnosis of NMOSD, but as you alluded to, it is possible to have seronegative NMOSD, as we call it. Uh, that is a little bit of a trickier diagnosis to make. Um, there are international consensus guidelines uh, on this, which were published in 2015. So essentially, if you're looking to make a diagnosis of aquaporin-4 positive neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder, according to the guidelines, you're looking for one of six core clinical characteristics. So those are uh, longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, for example, optic neuritis, an area postrema syndrome, or symptomatic brainstem diencephalic or cerebral syndrome. Sorry, those are, those are really summarized, but you're looking for like one core clinical characteristic and a positive aquaporin-4 antibody, and that would give you a diagnosis of seropositive neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder. To make a diagnosis of a seronegative case, the criteria are more stringent, so you need at least two core clinical characteristics, and at least one of them has to be optic neuritis myelitis with a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis or area postrema syndrome. And in addition to the two core clinical characteristics, there are also MRI requirements that they set out in the international guidelines that need to be fulfilled. So for example, if you're gonna call it a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, it has to be uh, equal to or more than three vertebral segments. And of course, like everything else, you need to be investigating for and excluding alternative diagnoses as well. So how, how specific is the antibody? Do, do you get many sort of false positives? So it, it's incredibly specific. So um, 
the the depending on what assay you use so the recommended assay for to test for aquaporin 4 antibody is a cell-based assay and in some studies you're looking at a sensitivity of about 76 percent but a specificity of 99.8 percent which is really impressive yeah okay and, and are you checking it in serum or in csf generally in serum okay so, so you don't need to yeah, check it in csf yeah, yeah. okay great so you um i guess this maybe links back to some of the core characteristics that you've just mentioned actually in the diagnostic criteria there but so w if you're seeing a patient when should uh, a general medic or when should a neurologist suspect someone might have NMO SD? So it's important I think to just keep it in mind um, it is one of the I guess newer diagnoses people are starting to know about it a little bit more now but the most important thing is to just keep it in mind when you do see someone with an inflammatory CNS um, type event. But in particular, there are certain clinical situations where we definitely recommend testing for it. So, um, for example, if someone has a longitudinally extensive transverse myelitis, as I've already said, looking at more than or equal to three contiguous segments, so segments that are together, um, as well as optic neuritis, which tends to be in neuromyelitis optica spectrum disorder, very severe with a poor recovery or if you're looking at um, a scan where it's, it's quite long uh, and it's more in the posterior pathway, um, as well as, as someone presents with a bilateral optic neuritis, which is rarer in things like multiple sclerosis, or a, you know, even if they have optic neuritis in one eye, if they develop it in the other eye very quickly, so a sequential optic neuritis. And I think one of the places where sometimes patients um, can go through a bit of a complicated diagnostic journey is when they present with areoposterema syndrome, uh, where they present with things like intractable nausea, intractable vomiting and hiccups without a clear explanation. Sometimes patients can go through gastroenterology, for example, perhaps before they get referred to a neurologist. Um, and then, you know, some of the other things to keep in mind is if you see lesions which look a little bit strange on the MRI, like a dorsal medullary lesion, um, and then symptoms related to the thalamus or the hypothalamus, that sort of diencephalic clinical syndrome. And then I think another area to keep it in mind to, to test for it uh, would be if you're looking at a CNS inflammation, but it's not, it's not quite sitting right, perhaps, for multiple sclerosis, and that patient is oligoclonal band negative, then you know it's something to keep in mind as well. Yeah, and it sounds like if you if you send the antibody acroporin for antibody and it returns positive, you have to pay attention to that. It's a very yeah. good test, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so um, talk us through what would be a sort of typical workup of the of a patient presenting <clears throat> with this. Um, so when a patient is clinically suspected um, as having NMOSD. We typically form a group of tests, as you might expect. We perform blood tests, a lumbar puncture to look at CSF and, and imaging uh, in the form of an MRI looking at brain, orbits and spinal cord, usually, depending on how the patient presents, of course. So if you're doing the blood tests, of course, as we discussed, you'd be looking for the aquaporin for antibody on a cell-based assay. We usually re also test contemporaneously for a MOG antibody as well, because there's a lot of clinical overlap between MOG antibody-associated disease, or MOGAD, and aquaporin-4. Um, so that is frequently done at the same time. And um, we would also look at doing a, a lumbar puncture for CSF. So with uh, NMOSD, you may expect to find that this is looks inflammatory. Um, so you'd get um, higher white cells. It tends to be maybe mixed. 
um, on some studies and looking at the median cell count, people have found you know 19, but it can range. Um, as I alluded to before, unlike multiple sclerosis, you know people do send for oligoclonal bands, but you would expect them to be negative. And then depending on the clinical picture, imaging is important because you can look for specific characteristics in the imaging that may make you think NMOSD is more likely. So if a patient presents with optic neuritis, it would be good to do an MRI of the orbits, um, looking for that longitudinally extensive optic nerve um, change, which may be more posterior, may involve the chiasm. And often contrast is a helpful as well. Other things that you can consider, I guess, to confirm optic, optic nerve involvement are VEPs and, and OCTs are often helpful to look at sort of acute changes, but also to follow along with down the track. And then, of course, that's, that's what you would be looking at if you're highly suspicious of NMOSD, but you'd also be performing investigations to look at differential diagnoses. And then if you confirm a diagnosis, then you're doing investigations to look at um, whether or not immunosuppressive treatment would be appropriate for that patient, um, like infective screens and things like TPMT for azathioprine, that kind of stuff. We'll, we'll get on to treatment in just a second. So you mentioned the phrase earlier about a longitudinally extensive spinal cord um, lesion. Just just for listeners, what, what do you mean by longitudinally extensive? Sort of how, how, how long does that tend to be? So it can be incredibly long. So certainly, you know, it can take up sometimes the whole spinal cord. But to be defined as longitudinally extensive, you would be looking at more than or equal to three vertebral segments. Okay, and and I guess, so in con- that would be unusual in MS to have- It would be, yeah. That, that kind of inflammatory Yeah, lesion. so MS tends to have shorter segment uh, inflammatory lesions in the spinal cord, and they also tend, the, there's other differences as well. So MS tends to be more posterior or lateral and yep. more focal whereas NMOSD can be it can sort of take up because it because of the extensive inflammation sometimes it can look like it's the whole spinal cord involved okay so um so if you have a patient in front of you and you're, you're suspecting NMOSD what, what are the the treatment options for, for how you manage patients so the treatment options probably differ depending on where you live um, and the resources and what's approved in your particular country. So for example, in the United Kingdom, first line treatment options for patients would be oral immunosuppressive treatments. So we'd be looking at things like azathioprine and mycophenolate mofetil most commonly. Another treatment is something called rituximab, which is an anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. We know that that's an effective treatment for NMO, uh, aquaporin 4 NMOSD, the way it works is that it targets the CD20, which is expressed on certain populations of B cells, and it depletes these B cell subsets. There have actually been some studies on it, looking specifically at NMOSD as well. In the UK, this is available uh, should a patient have a relapse on that first-line treatment. So if they have a relapse on azathioprine or mycophenolate, or if for some reason they can't tolerate uh, you know certain treatments um, then that would be available for them as well other countries however may have it as an option for first-line therapy um, so those are the I guess the most common things that are used at the moment in the United Kingdom there are lots of other treatments that I'm sure you know listeners may be aware of so uh, I think NMOSD is a field which has been very fortunate to have seen lots of research activity lots of new treatments being developed so there's actually quite a lot yeah um, would you like me to go through what might have... Well, I guess it's a, it's a general question would be, so what about the sort of disease-modifying treatments used for MS? Do any of them have efficacy in NMO or are they 
generally because of the different because this is a different pathological <clears throat> process, they tend not to work. That's a really good question. Um, there have been studies on certain treatments that are used for multiple sclerosis and whether or not they're helpful in NMOSD as well. I think one of the main reasons why it's so important to differentiate multiple sclerosis and NMOSD is because certain MS treatments um, can actually make NMOSD worse. Okay. So um, in particular things like Tysabri, for example, you wouldn't be using in someone with NMOSD. But I did mention rituximab and I'm sure you know listeners know also that there's certain MS treatments that target B cells as well, things like ocrelizumab and ofatumumab. So um, there are overlaps in the way those work. So if you, for example, had a patient who had uh, NMOSD or you know, you're not quite sure where it might be going, MS or NMOSD, things like B-cell depletion with ocrelizumab may be a safer option for them. But yes, there's certainly some treatments you should avoid that okay. you would use for MS but not for NMOSD. And uh, a patient presenting with, say, an MS relapse or, or present for the first time, we'd sometimes give steroids acutely to, to reduce inflammation and, and hopefully speed up recovery. Is there a role for steroids in NMOSD as well? Absolutely. So what we've just discussed are long-term immunosuppressive treatments. So the role of those are to reduce the risk of relapse in patients uh, ongoing. But if someone presents to you with an acute CNS inflammatory event, you're suspicious of, if they already have known NMOSD, I guess, for example, and you're suspicious of a relapse, it is important to treat them you know, rapidly um, and effectively. So what we recommend for that is, as you said, corticosteroids, similar as you would with multiple sclerosis. Generally, um, we use five days. So for example, one gram of methylprednisolone for five days intravenously. Um, you can sometimes use oral forms of methylprednisolone as well. And then we would escalate rapidly. So we'd monitor patients um, carefully to see whether they're responding quickly. And we would escalate rapidly to something else like plasma exchange if they're not responding. Okay, excellent. Um, and then what are, in, in your experience, obviously you, you've seen lots of patients now with NMOSD um, and lots of referrals from other centers uh, to, to your team. Here, so in your experience, what would be the common conditions that might mimic NMO uh, SD, and and what are the clues that you might be dealing with a mimic rather than NMO SD itself? So I think the classic inflammatory conditions that affect the central nervous system that can mimic NMO or that that people are trying to differentiate usually are things that we've discussed already. So you'd be trying to differentiate it from multiple sclerosis and MOG antibody associated disease. There are really great tables all over, you know, review articles. For example, there was a, a recent 2023 MOGAD diagnostic criteria published this year, which has a really nice table comparing all three conditions. But generally, inflammatory attacks in NMOSD, they tend to be more severe than multiple sclerosis. That can be a clue. Um, and patients with multiple sclerosis and MOG antibody-associated disease, they tend to show a better clinical recovery. Um, in terms of the specific ways they can present, so optic neuritis in NMOSD and MOGAD is more frequently bilateral than multiple sclerosis, so that's a good clue. It's actually most frequently bilateral in MOG antibody-associated disease. And then lesions, I've already sort of talked about this, but within the optic nerve, if you image them, for example, the, you see the abnormalities can be quite long in NMOSD and MOGAD compared to multiple sclerosis. MOGAD tends to be more anterior when you're looking at imaging, um, and classically people talk about um, aquaporin for NMOSD being posterior with potential chiasmal involvement 
And then in the spinal cord, we talked about the fact that uh, NMOSD is more longitudinally extensive. In um, MOGAD, you can also get uh, some classic findings that, you know, it depends on, you know, how you've imaged it, but um, you can get conus lesions, which is a very characteristic finding of MOG antibody-associated disease. And the gray matter can be involved, which forms something called a H sign in MOGAD, which, you know, if you're lucky to find that can be, can lead you in a particular direction. If you're looking at you know, symptoms that affect the brain, one thing important to keep in mind is that if a patient is presenting with more of an encephalopathy picture and seizures, that would be more typical of MOGAD than MS or NMOSD. And a certain ADEM-type presentation is much more typical of MOGAD than NMOSD, especially in children. Um, but having said that, it's, it's important to keep the differentials broad. So those are the, those are the typically the patients, sorry, the diseases that are comparable to NMOSD. But, you know, it's important to consider things like infectious, malignant, and even vascular causes as well. I think a really important um, differential diagnosis to keep in mind if someone is referred to you with a long spinal cord lesion, especially if they have an atypical presentation like a prolonged progressive course or a stepwise course or they have lots of vascular risk factors in a male is things like dural AV fistula, which we have found in patients that have been referred to us before. Yeah, and, and it sounds like if, if CSF were completely <clears throat> normal, uh, normal protein, normal cell count, that would be a bit unusual for NMOSD, is that fair? Or, or can you actually... Yeah, that I is... think we would expect it to be elevated. But if, if for example, you were already suspecting a dural AV fistula and then you found zero cells, no evidence of inflammation, then you that would be yeah. pointing towards something else. Yes. Okay, well, thanks very much, Miri. That's been a, a fantastic review of, uh, of an interesting, um, a very interesting area of neurology. So um, maybe just to finish off, you can tell us about your experience of the fellowship here at the Walton Centre and ha how it's gone over the last year and a half and, and what sort of things you do in the fellowship. So I've been really lucky to do the fellowship here at the Walton Centre. Um, so as John said, I've been doing it for a year and a half. It's based in, in Liverpool, which is a wonderful city to live in. Um, as part of the fellowship, you get a lot of experience in neuroinflammatory conditions and uh, you are one of several fellows usually that are working in a national service. So we're lucky enough to have a, a funded national NMOSD service where patients are referred from different areas of the United Kingdom. The Liverpool National Service uh, services those uh, around the north of the UK and then there is another service also based in Oxford. Um, but it gives a lot of experience in atypical conditions because they don't always end up having NMOSD, but you do get a lot of experience in that as well. Yeah. Okay. Well, great. Thanks, Mary. And uh, yeah, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information about this episode, please visit our website at neuropodcases.co.uk. Thank you.